Church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For those of you that have been uh, journeying with us, uh, we've been walking through Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, his first letter for Thessalonians. We come now to these concluding remarks of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I don't know if you know this, but somebody told me this morning that Thanksgiving is Thursday. Did you know that? Uh, that, I'm gonna, that has slipped up on me. I, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but Thanksgiving has come and it has come like a surprise. Maybe it's because of the season of life that our family is in and the busyness of their schedules. It feels in some respects as if this fall school semester has been about four or five weeks, but it is rushed by. And it's fitting in some respects that Thanksgiving could slip up on us. Uh, Christmas will not slip up on you. Our, our retailers make sure that you know that Christmas is before us. Christmas decorations go on sale uh, mid-June, just so you have enough time to be able to get your Christmas lights up. More and more people are putting their Christmas lights up after Halloween, the day after Halloween, which is, which is a statement, no doubt. That is a statement to get Christmas lights up that early. Now, Christmas you will see and you will know it is coming. Thanksgiving is sort of like a speed bump on the way to the destination of Christmas. In many ways, we diminish the role of it. We don't think much about it. It is reserved for Black Friday sales and endless food and watching football. Is there more to glean out of Thanksgiving than just that? And the answer is, of course, it is. And are there more fitting words in all of Scripture than that what we find ourselves hearing as Paul comes to the end of his letter to the church at Thessalonica? When he writes in verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Then verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Why, Paul? Well, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, oftentimes we think of the will of God and we think of it solely confined to these momentous life decisions that are fork in the road kind of of parting of ways. I'm going to go left or I'm going to go right. I've got endless colleges maybe that you could consider choosing what is the will of God in what college I choose. We've got a variety of majors that I can have, and we think, what's the will of God for the major that I have? Or the career and vocation that you give your life to, or maybe who you're going to marry, or where you're going to settle down and live. And oftentimes, we can find the will of God to those kinds of conversations, fork in the road decisions. And of course, we desire to be led by God in those momentous decisions that we're going to make. And of course, we can seek God and live in his will in such a way that we can make prudent and wise decisions, not only in the big things of life, but the, but the small, seemingly small, what sometimes we might think are even insignificant decisions. We can trust that God leads us, that we seek he first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. But it is interesting how specific Paul is about the will of God for your life. He doesn't talk about career decisions. He doesn't talk about what you're going to major in or what college you're going to go to. He doesn't talk about where you're going to settle down and live and how many kids you might have. No, he says very simply, 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, and this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do you know God's will for you? God's will for you is your joy in the midst of life's circumstances. Do you know that God's will is your joy in the midst of life's circumstances? Verse 16 again says, rejoice always. Don't think this is an exceptional refrain of the Apostle Paul. Over two dozen times in his epistles, he'll come back to this similar theme you find in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Just in case someone didn't get it again, I will say rejoice. Lest you think that uh, choosing joy is something that is situational. Lest you think that, that joy is something that has to be chosen even when life is going well and you have all these bright, sunshiny days in front of you. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Now what is joy? If Paul would tell us to rejoice in the Lord, if Paul would tell us that we have the ability to rejoice in him always, we, we might want to define what that is. I think Rick Warren, the now retired pastor at Saddleback Community Church in Orange County, California, he, I think he sums it up really well when he gives us this definition of joy that I think in many ways is, is encompassing of what the Bible teaches us, that joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in most situations, some of the situations, in every situation. Again, this is verse 16 that Paul gives us. Rejoice always. It's an invitation to choose joy. Uh, many times you've heard maybe this distinction between joy and happiness. You hear sort of the cliche phrase that happiness is dependent upon our happenings. There is something that is true about this. Joy can be found in the Lord regardless of the happenings around you and the happenings inside of you. There is something about joy that is rooted and it is deeper that you can choose joy even in difficult situations. You can choose joy even in painful situations. You can choose joy when there are tears flowing down your cheeks and you are not happy because the happenings of life are difficult and they're, they're grievous, but you can choose joy. And what a powerful witness when you see people do that. When you have a friend who is walking down this road of a difficult diagnosis and, and chooses to say, it is well with my soul. It's a powerful witness that the joy of the Lord is my strength. You know what it is when you have a, a, a family member who is grieving the passing of their spouse or son or mother or father and is able in that moment, even with tears flowing down their cheeks to be able to say the joy of the Lord is my strength, to be able to see a, a settled assurance in the in the certain provision of our God, even when the company is downsizing or even when the company is, is issuing out pink slips, to be able to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength, even when there are more question marks ahead than settled periods in my life. 
that, that you are invited to rejoice always because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But don't just take my word for it. We can look back in church history and to be able to see powerful witnesses of the people of God choosing joy in, in unimaginable circumstances. Many of you know the name Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe you're familiar with some of his writings like The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. He's a famous German pastor, author, theologian. 1944, he finds himself in a Gestapo prison. He is sentenced to his death because he was conspiring with others to stop the maniacal plans of Hitler. And it was a, a bomb that they tried to set off and it did not go that way that they, that they were planning. And so uh, Hitler and his regime was able to, to sniff out all of the conspirators. Bonhoeffer was one of them. He finds himself in the confines of a prison to never get out again. And he knew this. His last recorded words were a letter that he wrote to his fiancee he writes it in October of 1944. She receives it around Christmas. And in these circumstances, he writes to Maria, therefore I have not felt lonely or abandoned for one moment. You must not think I'm unhappy. Because what is happiness and unhappiness? It depends so little, Bonhoeffer says, on the circumstances. It really depends only on that which happens inside a person. What is Bonhoeffer talking about? He, he is talking about the joy of the Lord is what he's talking about. She would read those words in Christmas 1944, April the 9th, a few months later, at the age of 39, he was hung. He knew the joy of the Lord and he chose to rejoice always in spite of his surroundings, knowing this powerful witness that even a, a German uh, concentration camp cannot eradicate and stomp out the joy that, that surpasses all of our understanding. The joy that walks with us and the sure assurance that God is in control and God is good. So God's will is your joy in the midst of life circumstances. But secondly, from our passage this morning, God's will is your intimacy with him through all of life circumstances. Verse 17 is an invitation to commune with God at all times and all places. Pray without ceasing. It's not an invitation to think of prayer as something that, that we have to do 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No, it is a lifestyle of communion and intimacy with him. It's not as much about the minutes of the day or the hours of the day. It is the way we approach the days of our life. Do we approach the days of our life in communion with God? When you, when you read verse 17, pray without ceasing, there's two questions that this passage answers. What does it first tell us about prayer? What does this invitation to pray without ceasing tell us about prayer? And it reminds us that a certain posture for prayer is not essential. Uh, you can pray on your knees as you get up out of the bed you, you can pray on your feet as you're getting ready for the day. You can, you can pray sitting down as you're driving to work. You can pray lying down as, as you doze off at the end of the day here. That, that there's not a certain posture to prayer that you have to take. Kneeling, sitting, standing, running, walking, lying down. All of the postures that you have is an invitation for you to commune with God. It also tells us that a certain time and place for prayer is not essential. 
We are called to have prayer closets, but if we're going to pray without ceasing, those prayer closets must be portable. And so when we wake up, it is an invitation to pray, thanking God for the gift of life. When you shower and prepare for the day, it is an invitation to commune with God. When you commute to work in that time, it is a prayer closet of your vehicle. It is an invitation for you to commune with the Almighty. When you walk the halls of your office or you sit in the classroom of your school, it is an invitation for you to commune with the Almighty. Brother Lawrence, many of you are familiar, he was a 17th century monk who was stationed in Paris. And out of all of the duties that he could be assigned, he had what in many places would be considered the most menial and mundane duties of the monastery, which is he cleaned and he cooked. And out of this extensive communion that Brother Lawrence has with the Lord, he writes this book, The Practice of the Presence of God, in which he says, nor is it needful that we should have great things to do for God. So many people, he would say, I've got to have great things that I'm going to do for God, to be significant before him. And he says, we can do little things for God. I can turn the cake that's frying on the pan for the love of him. And that done, if there's nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself and worship before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I, I rise happier than a king, Brother Lawrence says. It is enough. I love this line. I hope you hear it. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. Brother Lawrence knew Jesus in this intimate way. And if we're going to pray without ceasing, it is a posture of our life where where we see God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not not as a distant king who we might be able to schedule one meeting with or one passing intimate touch with in our lifetime. No, we we don't see him as a a distant king removed and uh, away from our life, nor, nor do we see him as a consultant that we just turn to him when we need fresh eyes and fresh ears to be able to give us insight into a situation, nor do we turn to God as he's a mechanic our, kind of our personal mechanic that when things aren't going right and something needs to be fixed, we call upon him and says, hey, just give me a framework. And when it gets fixed, I'll come and pick it up. So often we treat God in those kinds of ways. And what this invitation to pray without ceasing reminds us of is that God wants to be your intimate friend. The most intimate of friends. There's never, there's never a point or place in your life that is not a opportunity for you to converse with God and to be aware of his presence in your life. It's sort of like that old hymn. Got this anonymous person that comes to the garden and comes to alone. The dew is still upon the roses and you get to the course and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy that we share, God and man, God and woman, as we tarry there, none other has ever known. It's a good reminder. God's will is your intimacy with him through all of life's circumstances. What does this tell us about prayer? Uh, Remind you, there's not a certain posture that you have. There's not a certain time and place that is essential. But there's another question that might be even a more important question that this passage answers for us. And that is, what does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about God? Well, it tells us if we're invited to pray always, if we're to live a life in intimacy and communion with him, this means that, that he doesn't have office hours. 
I mean, God is not saying to us, hey, I need you to commune with me. I've got one to two free. How does that work for you? This means that anytime you turn to the Lord, you don't get a, you don't get a busy signal. Anytime you turn to God, he doesn't put you on hold. Anytime that you turn to God, he doesn't look you over. Anytime that you turn to God, he doesn't get distracted and not able to, to meet that need in that moment in his sovereign will. Isn't this glorious good news that anytime you turn to him, he hears you and he answers your request in his sovereign will. This is glorious good news that, that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, as the writer of Hebrews would say, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Do you hear him? Yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive. What do we receive? We receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. What a powerful reminder to all of us that are here that there's never a time that is off limits for you to commune with the creator of the universe. That there's never a time that he looks you over or passes you over you have this moment the ability for all of us in this sanctuary and every sanctuary in the United States and every sanctuary and every house church and every home that every Christian in that moment turns to God and he hears us all individually because he's all-knowing and he's ever-present. We're not. We have limitations. I remember 10, 11, 12 years ago, I was finishing up my dissertation and I, we had a bonus room above the garage and I would, especially on Fridays and Saturdays, evenings, when the boys would go to bed, they were maybe four and three, Hayden and Luke were, when I was just having to bear down and just churn it out and get it finished. And I remember I would, I would go up, especially on my days off and on the weekends, and I would go up the steps I would get situated, all the books ready, start writing, and I would hear the, the, the scampering of little feet come up those steps. As soon as I would get started, I'd hear, Daddy, can you play? Daddy, why, what, why is the door locked? Dad, and Danielle was great. I mean, she would take the boys and she would have them do things. But there was just something about anytime I would shut that door because I didn't use it all the time. So a lot of their toys were up there. That was sort of their place and it was kind of my place and I had to finish it up and I had to have these kind of boundaries and they would just knock and it would just kind of tear at my heart to hear them say, hey dad, why can't we come in? And every parent understands the limitations as much as we're available to our children. We have jobs and we have to go play. You're not with them 24-7. You can't be with them 24-7. You don't need to be with them 24-7. So there are times that they want something. There are times that they need you. And you just, because of the limitations of you as a father and a mother, you can't always be there. God has never felt that problem. I mean, he's never felt that emotion. There's never a time where you as his children turn to him and he says, I, I, hold, hold on, I've got I've to finish something up here. But as soon as I get finished up with this project, I will come, I, I promise you. Never said it. He's all-knowing, ever-present, and he's always there. 
He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So what does this tell us about God? He's available to us. So let's don't waste this privilege. What a wonderful privilege that we have to bask in the intimate presence of our creator and sustainer and savior. So Colossians chapter four, verse two is a good word for us. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with what? Thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. What, what a beautiful invitation for us to not waste the privilege and intimacy that we have with our God. So God's will is your joy in the midst of life circumstances. God's will is your intimacy with him through all of life circumstances. And finally, God's will is your gratitude in all of life circumstances. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, you note as I'm preaching this, I think these are three phrases that give us an invitation to what the will of God is for your life. It is, it is to rejoice always. It is to pray without ceasing. And it is to give thanks in all circumstances. And note the all-encompassing nature of all three of these exhortations to us. Rejoice. How? Always. Pray when? Without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. I think this, I mean, he's already said always. He's already said without ceasing. But I think this, being grateful in all circumstances, tends to be what seems impossible for us. Actually, it seems absurd. I mean, really, is Paul saying that when we're backing out at Publix and we have this sort of fender bender in the parking lot, that that is a time that we should give thanks. I mean, is he saying that, that we should give thanks for mosquito bites and paper cuts? Is he saying when you're walking through your living room and you're barefoot and you stub your toe on the leg of a couch, that's in that moment that you give thanks? And, and notice again the words of the passage. I mean, look there with me in verse 18. Notice what he says. Is he telling us to be grateful for injustice, to be grateful for dementia? Is he telling us to be grateful for cancer diagnosis? Just give thanks in everything. And the distinction is that Paul doesn't say give thanks for everything, but give thanks in everything. There are going to be parts of our life that are difficult and painful. And those parts of our life sometimes can be the result of our sin and other people's sin. Some things that we receive in life, are not the good gifts of God, but they're a result of the fall of humanity. They're a result of an enemy that prowls around and the sinful decisions that we can make and other people can make. And what Paul says in this passage, which is very significant, is even in those situations, give thanks in all circumstances. So here's the invitation. The invitation is to walk through life with the foundational reality that everything that comes your way, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is underneath God's sovereign control. This is a grounding truth for us as Christians. And if we lose this, we lose our moorings. If we lose this, we lose what we're tethered to because 
you, you will be the recipient of difficult days. You will be the cause of difficult days. This is a foundational reality. I love the way John Calvin, the Genevan reformer, he's preaching through 1 Thessalonians. He comes to this very passage and he says, for what is fitter or more suitable for comforting us, you and me, for comforting us, than when we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly, he embraces us so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 is really just a kissing cousin to Romans 8, 28. For I know he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now from a human vantage point, there are things in our life that are boring and there are things in our life that are beautiful. There are things in our life that are memorable and there are things in our life that are mundane. But God tells us that he weaves it together, all the mundane and all the memorable, all the boring and all the beautiful, and he weaves it together in this beautiful tapestry of his will. This is a glorious truth for us to hold on to. From a human vantage point, we see the bad days and we see the good days. We can sometimes have these kind of worthless days and we wish we could rewind and redo and go back and change. And we wish we could undo some things, all of that. But what we have in this passage is that no detail of your life is irrelevant and no detail of your life is insignificant. God is using it all. He's using everything for your ultimate good and his eternal everlasting glory. This holds us, this upholds us. So this is the only way that we actually can live into this passage to be grateful in any and every circumstance. It's hard to do, but when we do it, we are walking through the spirit in his will. I remember, I guess it was about 10 years ago, I was meeting with a older pastor, wise pastor, who was a mentor of mine then and continues to be a mentor of mine. We were having lunch. And I guess the specific way to describe this lunch was me. I didn't intend for it to be this way, but it was just me unloading, just sort of dumping my, my thoughts and difficulties and everything I was going through. And it was a lot of poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me. It was good. It was good. He, he heard me out and he didn't really intercede and interject and kind of change. But, but he, he heard all of it. And he said, David, for these last 15 minutes or 20 minutes, what, what I've heard is, is just sort of this overwhelming sense of negativity. I've heard just this overwhelming sense of kind of grumpiness and grouchiness. He said, I'm going to encourage you to do one thing for the next 30 days. So I'm like, okay, you know, what is this? And he said, every day, at the end of the day, I want you to write down three things, three people, three experiences, whatever they are, but they're three for the next 30 days that you are grateful for. And I've got two specifications. One is it's got to be specific. And the other one is it has to be unique. So you can't on day one say God and day two say God and day three say God and that I'm thankful for God, God, God. It's got to be specific, the attributes of God. It's got to be specific, something in your family. You can't just say day one, Danielle, day two, Danielle, day three, Danielle, day four, Danielle. It's got to be some aspect of Danielle. It's got to be a, a specific. And then, and then more than that, it's got to be unique. So you can't repeat it. Three things 
the end of 30 days, and then we're going to have lunch again. So I pulled out my phone, first day, and I'm going to tell you, it was interesting. It was hard for me. It was hard for me. But as I sort of started working that muscle, that muscle of gratitude, that with each and every day, there was a sense in which I had greater clarity to see just how much I had to be grateful for when I started turning my gaze in that direction. 30 days come up, I have lunch with him. He said, did you do what I asked you to do? I said, yes. And he says, I want you to read it. And I said, well, I have read it. I mean, I read it every time I read it. He said, no, 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 I want you to read it right now. And I was like, right now here in the restaurant? He said, well, you don't, have to, you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to read it to the whole restaurant, but I want you to read it out loud to me. And I, I remember this just like it was yesterday. Number one, and I read it out loud. Number two, I read it out loud. Number three, I read it out loud. Number four, I read it out loud. By the time I got to the end of the list, I just sat there. He said, what does this tell you? about God and what does this tell you about you? And in that moment, the only thing that I could say through tears is I am so incredibly blessed. I didn't know that I was gonna be living out the words of that famous old hymn. But in that moment, I was, I was counting my blessings and I was naming them one by one. And I was counting my blessings. And I was able to bask in what God had done. At times we have underdeveloped spiritual muscles. Usually we, we do a lot of curls and bench presses and deadlifts and squats. We, we do that with intercession we, we can ask God for this and ask God for this and ask God and intercede for this person, that person. But sometimes we, we've got some muscles that are underdeveloped. And I think one of those muscles is the muscle of gratitude. And what would the next 30 days look like in your life and in your family's life if at the end of the day you paused and you counted the blessings? Maybe it's just you individually would take up this challenge and for the next 30 days, you would do what I was asked to do. 30 days, three unique and specific ways that I could see gratitude in my life. Or maybe you're a father and a mother of three kids. And maybe it's just for the next 30 days that each one of you at the end of the day were able to, to note and to write what you are grateful for. But it has to be specific and it has to be unique. And at the end of those 30 days, I challenge you, read them out loud. If that's you individually, if that's you and your family, and just count the way that God is blessing you. No matter what the circumstances are, this is true. He invites us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. Why, Paul? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, for me, for all of us.
Let us pray.